Hello, and welcome to the Bitcoin Takeover podcast. This is the ninth episode of season three. And my guest today is Ragnar, who basically took on the challenge of topping the performance of American Huddle. In the previous episode, I guess I, ha I have had the widest and the most active audience ever, and I got lots of responses, and people were quite happy to hear about 615 Bitcoins. But this time, it's, it's maybe the opportunity to get more serious and talk to the owner of Guns and Bitcoin. But I have agreed with Ragnar to turn this into some kind of gimmicky podcast where we purposely don't talk about guns and focus mostly on Bitcoin. Right. Yeah. Yes. Vlad, thanks for having me on this show. And yeah, I talk about guns all the time, so we don't need to discuss that. We could talk about lots of fun things, Lightning Network and all sorts of things. Yeah. What about Lightning? Because I remember you posted a few months ago and mentioned that you're not really interested in it. And now, as far as I know, you are experimenting with running your own node. Yeah. So I always like to just be honest with people and share my opinions. I know Sometimes they're popular opinions and sometimes they're not, but I haven't been as excited about the Lightning Network um, compared to, I think, a lot of people. So I, I can definitely discuss that. Um, I've really, it's been only really recently. So I guess I should just start with the first time I ever tried to use Lightning Network. That was back in June at the Bitcoin Magazine Conference in San Francisco. And I was selling hats um, for Guns and Bitcoin, my company. And a couple people tried to pay me in Bitcoin, but they were, I think, using a Lightning Network wallet and they, they couldn't pay me Bitcoin. For, for some reason, I don't know why, a technical reason, but it just it didn't work. So that was my first experience with, with Lightning Network. Okay, sorry, I, I accidentally muted my microphone. But okay. why do you think there is this reluctance to get on Lightning? Because I know a lot of people trust whatever happens on the main chain because it's auditable. It has been for such a long time, so there's that Lindy effect. And it feels like sometimes Lightning is a gamble and you're taking your chances by experimenting with the kind of technology that's not as secure and hasn't proven itself over time. But at the same time, when I first heard about it, I just wanted to try. I didn't care much about losing because I took that as, I took it for granted basically that I can do stupid stuff and lose some Satoshis. I think I have lost about 100,000 Satoshis. So you're welcome, hodlers. But with some people, it's just difficult to get them to try. And even the idea of, installing some kind of custodial wallet application like the wallet of Satoshi or Blue Wallet seems unattractive and they just decide to stick to what has been demonstrated to work. For me, I'm not a technologist, I would say. I don't come from a tech background. So a lot of the tech doesn't interest me as much as others. I'm not a software engineer and I've been in Bitcoin for several years. And so I'm really comfortable with regular on-chain payments, you know, done it many, many times, run a node. So I'm, I'm really comfortable and familiar with on-chain payments and I just haven't had a need to, to use them. Um, when I have 
bought things with Bitcoin. I just use a regular on-chain payment with my company guns and Bitcoin. Um, just accepting payments with BTC pay server has been easy, almost no problems. And my experience to date with lightning network has been two things. I haven't needed to use it. And when I have tried to use it, it was, it was difficult. Now, this has changed a little bit starting from a couple weeks ago when I got a message from someone in the Czech Republic and he said he, he wanted to buy a hat, but he only wanted to use the Lightning Network. So he said, if you could set that up, I'll, I'll buy a hat. So that's when I said, okay, I'll try it because now if this you know, increases my business, if I'm able to sell more products and it's worth it to me. So I tried to set it up and I thought I did, but I didn't. So then um, a couple of days ago, someone on Twitter that I know, really nice guy, he messaged me and said, hey, Ragnar, your Lightning Network, it doesn't work. Like I can't, I can't buy something. And then one or two other people messaged me the same thing within a couple of hours. So then I had to go back and try to set it up. And it was very, very difficult. It took me probably a total of seven or eight hours to get it right. And fortunately that I was working with the people at BTC pay server and they were excellent, very patient. I could not have done it without them. People like Pavlinix, Brit, um, who am I missing? Uh, Brit Pavlinix, um, and a couple other people. I know I just missed someone, but they spent our oh, uh, rockstar dev helped me with the original setup. So it, it was, it was very frustrating. I almost gave up. And so it was very difficult. So for me, Lightning Network, I'm all about being practical and using things. And I don't have a lot of time. I'm so busy with what I do that I don't have time to just experiment and learn things. And you said you lost, I can't remember how many Satoshis, um, 100,000 or a million. Okay, yeah. See, for, for me, that's, that's, that's a lot of Bitcoin that I don't want to lose. So as a business owner, I don't want to lose any money as much as it's, it's good to help the technology advance and to try to, um, you know, try to be current with the developments uh, as a business owner, I have to look at the bottom line. And so for me, I'm still a little uncomfortable with it. I don't want to lose any Bitcoin and I might because I, I tend to keep messing up basic things. So I'm, I'm giving it a try. We'll, we'll see how it goes. I, I think now I'm over the, the learning curve and lots of people have been helping me. They've been setting up channels with me. So I'm, I'm trying. So I'm, I'm definitely going to try to try to use it for a couple of months and see how it goes. I think BTC Pay Server is one of the best inventions that we have had in this space in a long time. And the idea that it all started from Nicolas Dorier's just rage against BitPay when he basically said, I'm going to make you obsolete. And he started laying the foundations of a payment system, which enables you to use Bitcoin. That's incredible. And the fact that you get Rockstar Dev and all the others to help you with your setup and they walk you through the whole process and they are nice and everything just goes to show that we are still in the early days and this has a lot of potential to grow. I agree. I was there when Nicholas uh, tweeted that during the, the battle over the block size and SegWit in 2017. I remember that quote and that tweet and I just... Amazing, amazing. So his project is amazing. I agree. Um, and then all the contributors, it, it's just unbelievable to see this open source 
uh, project developed developed so quickly just from volunteers. This isn't a company. And then seeing how helpful everyone is. I mean, Pavlinex is, I watched his videos to set up guns and Bitcoin. So it was only through his videos that I, I set everything up. And then Rockstar Dev helped me with this issue I had. It took him hours and it was actually something dumb that I did. So not only is the origin story amazing of how it got started with, with BitPay, which is one of the worst actors in Bitcoin, then to see the technology, how amazing it is, and then to see the people involved, it's, it's very, very exciting. Then Square Crypto announced, you know, they're making a donation. So I, I love, love BTC Pay Server. It's really in the spirit of Bitcoin with censorship resistance and, um, you know, permissionless and not relying on third parties. I love it. It's also following the cypherpunk philosophy. We're not basically asking permission to the old financial world to allow us to make payments with conversions and whatever BitPay uses. We basically just use what we have. And since we agree that Bitcoin has value, then we're going to only transact Bitcoin through a system which is proprietary and does not rely on any legacy financial system. I think this is essential for everything that we are trying to accomplish. I agree. And Pavlinek said that in, in a podcast they did with him, that when he got started, he he started, you know, Bitcoin Shirt Co. And he wanted to accept Bitcoin, of course. And and it was only BitPay that was around. And he didn't like it because that's a trusted third party. You have KYC, AML. And it, he just said, we have Bitcoin, but we're using this legacy financial system and it's against Bitcoin. And so that's when he told me why he got started, even though he's not a software developer, he started making videos and guides and helping with feedback. And so it's hard to have Bitcoin without BTC pay server, because how do you accept payments? How do you send invoices in, in, in a spirit that's, that's with Bitcoin? If you, if you have a currency like Bitcoin, but you're using a BitPay, it's, it doesn't make any sense. So I'm really glad all the guys and girls are, are working hard on it. I'm also happy that some of the big blockers have left and they took BitPay with them. As at some point, Roger Veer was bragging about all the merchant adoption. And to him, it was all about the partners that he could make via BitPay. And now we are just free to move on and basically take Bitcoin to its original purpose and roots, as opposed to embedding it into the traditional financial system, which maybe is the vision of some other people. That's a good point. And I think also people who got started in Bitcoin in the last year or even two years don't understand just what a threat BitPay was for quite a while when we were trying to adopt, get, you know, SegWit adopted. BitPay had a lot of power because they do so many transactions. So they're, you know, as you know, economic nodes are what matter. It doesn't matter if you run a node and you're not accepting Bitcoin. Like what matters are the nodes that accept Bitcoin because they're the ones who determine if they'll reject or accept the transaction that they that uh, comes into their node, so to speak. So because BitPay was so hostile and they had the economic node power and they had influential people, I was actually nervous for the first time with Bitcoin that it could have gone really wrong and then, of course, they still haven't adopted SegWit as far as I know and how much they spread bad information about Bitcoin. Like they 
when you go to their page, they have Bitcoin Cash and then they have Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. They, they say, you know, is better and they say Bitcoin has this really high transaction fee. So they add an additional transaction fee on top of their inflated uh, mining fee. So between them, you know, promoting Bitcoin Cash, between their spreading false information about Bitcoin. And then, of course, just how they accept Bitcoin, like they're I can't, I'm forgetting the, the BIP right now, BIP number. But their payment method is terrible. It's not compatible with a bunch of hardware wallets. So, I mean, it's almost like you couldn't design a worse company than BitPay. So BTC Pay, BTC Pay server solves many problems, including the threat, just the basic threat of, of BitPay. Yeah, and I'm really happy about the direction in which Bitcoin is going these days. As I have studied the history of development, and at some point, it was the consensus, as per Gavin and Reeson wanted it to happen, that Bitcoin had to hard fork to increase the block size. Yeah, and one of the best things to come out of, of 2017 and the uh, SegWit activation was that we proved so many things, right? We, we have empirical evidence that nodes are ultimately, I think, the most powerful uh, part of the network. It's not so much the miners and not even so much the, the developers. It's, it's individual hodlers and economic nodes. So that proved it, I think, once and for all. We, we proved that soft fork is the way to go. And, and just as importantly, this event kicked out a bunch of bad actors like Gavin Andreessen, Roger Ver, and a lot of the other big blockers. They either left or were completely marginalized and discredited. So, so many threats were diminished once we soft forked in and didn't hard fork. It was, it was probably the best thing to happen to Bitcoin in, in 10 years. Yeah, I totally agree. And I feel like Bitcoin is finally free to spread its wings and develop, even though I don't necessarily agree with all this oligopoly of organizations and the fact that you have Blockstream, which is huge, and a lot of developers are under the protection of Blockstream. So maybe that at some point this can be or become an attack vector. But at the same time, the fact that they understand the fundamentals and have no intentions to change them and their plan is to basically build side chains and the satellite and everything else just shows that their mind is in the right place in re relation to bitcoin and also i don't know they basically give money to developers i don't yeah see wrong with yeah. it at this point yeah, Blockstream is interesting because like you said, they are very big. They have a lot of money. They have uh, quite a few developers, but I think it's been way overblown. And a lot of that was Roger Veer um, kind of spreading conspiracy theories. And, and I think people just jealous in general. That being said, they are big and they do require extra scrutiny because of the things you said. And I think there's quite a few people that, that are really keep a sharp eye on them. They haven't been perfect. They've made some mistakes. But um, if you just be objective and look at what they've put out with the satellite, with their wallet, with side chains, with simplicity, um, confidential transactions, and, and a lot of the things, if you just look at the actual software they've produced, I think they have 
of a pretty good track record. I think what we should be looking for is for the change of narrative, because Bitcoin has gone through a lot of phases. It was banking the unbanked. It was sending money with zero fees, because at the time they were converting Satoshis to USD, and basically it was less than a cent. And I think it's dangerous for Blockstream to change the narrative according to whatever product they release to basically pump it. Because it's important for us, the hodlers and the people who got into Bitcoin, to remember what the purpose is and maintain this narrative even during the next bull runs when new people will get into Bitcoin and they will be attracted to various aspects. We should teach the fundamentals to everybody. And from that point onwards, they get to choose whichever service they want to use and whether or not it's useful to them. But we should not allow the services themselves to shape the narrative of what Bitcoin is. That's interesting thought. What do you think is the narrative that Blockstream has has advanced? I think right now they are trying to shill their liquid sidechain. And this idea came to me last week when Peter Todd, during a panel presentation at the Honey Badger conference, Baltic Honey Badger, he basically said that there is a risk that miners can basically get on liquid and support it and threaten the security model of Bitcoin. Yeah, so this is an interesting topic because the idea is that, okay, Bitcoin is permissionless. No one gets to dictate what it is and what it's not. For some people, they it's digital gold. For some people, it's payments. For some people, it's a way to timestamp. For some people, it's a way to create side chains. So it's tough because it's permissionless. So you can use it however you want. And this goes back to also like spam transactions. Like Veriblock is sort of spamming the Bitcoin blockchain and not supposed, you know, like SegWit was supposed to kind of, I don't know, not fix that, but but they're taking actually advantage of the lower fees that SegWit and some other things have done. So there's a debate. Hey, is, is that spam? They paid the fee. Well, okay, then it's valid. Well, wait a minute. Like you don't need Bitcoin's blockchain to do that. So that's an invalid use. And so Blockstream for their side chains, you can say, well, that's too bad. Bitcoin is permissionless. But then if it is true what Peter Todd said, that if it does threaten the security model of Bitcoin, then if it's true, I don't know. I'm not smart enough to, to know that yet. I haven't actually heard his remarks. But if it is true, then what? You know, do we say they can't do it or, or do we obviously pressure them to, to not do it or to do it in the right way? So it, it's a really good debate. You know, for me, I think you and I think the same way which is, you know, Bitcoin comes first, companies come after that. Yeah, and also there is this fact that Liquid is targeting exchanges and big traders. And these exchanges and big traders basically make up about 60-70% of block space. And if they all move on to Liquid, then we're going to have emptier blocks, not as an empty, but emptier blocks. And if we are heading towards a fee market where the mining rewards are getting lower, then we need miners to have the incentive to keep on operating their systems. 
So if they collect less money through mining, at least from big exchanges, then we should at least make sure that there are users like independent people using the main chain for transactions to fill the blocks. Because if they're not full, then there is a lesser incentive for them to keep on mining. I have two uh, ideas about that. First is maybe we can make the same argument uh, for the Lightning Network that if you're doing all these transactions off chain, then that's fewer transactions on chain, which could reduce you know, uh, the number of, uh, you know, the fees that miners will, will, will get. So that may have the same effect as liquid. The other thing is exchanges provide liquidity. And a lot of people don't like exchanges because they're regulated, right? KYC, AML, and that's the weakest link in Bitcoin are the exchanges because those are regulated. And, and what's dangerous is they provide liquidity and they're where, everyone like 98% of people buy and sell their Bitcoin on exchanges. So it's, it's a, it's a complicated thing. Um, especially exchanges, there's all sorts of murky things when we, when we start doing things with exchanges and Bitcoin. Yeah, I agree. But at the same time with lightning, you only get the microtransaction side. So I don't think it's aimed to take, the chunk of on-chain transactions, just regular users who want to transact. Actually, in the scenario where you have the exchanges using Liquid and regular users getting on Lightning, then I guess the main chain activity is going to be very, <laughs> I don't know how to call it. So we're, we're not going to fill the blocks anymore, which may be great. But I we think, have to think of minor incentives and maybe that it's a good idea to at some point encourage people to close channels after they make transactions on Lightning so that the Satoshis get on the main chain again and they get registered as a transaction. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little skeptical of that argument for two reasons. First, that obviously we have the difficulty adjustment. And second, that if if we do have blocks that aren't full, then maybe that's a compelling reason. Maybe that will give us support to reduce the block size, which I actually support. I know Luke Dasher's always, you know, wanted that and, and some others. It's somewhat controversial. Try to have a soft fork block size reduction. And maybe that would be good because it would make it easier to run a full node or at least the resources, the bandwidth would would decrease it. So it might be actually good for, for nodes. So, you know, Bitcoin is kind of complicated and there's in the sense that there's many dynamic factors that feed into each other. You know, you mentioned the miners and then, you know, the users and the exchanges and block space is such a critical part of the security model. So it's, it's an interesting thing how it's evolved over time. I almost forgot about Luke Dasher's proposal, but in this context, I think it makes a lot of sense. Maybe that in the next 10 years, we're not going to see it, but it's still an idea to take into consideration if you, we're not going to have as many on-chain transactions. Yeah, and, and going back to the idea of, um, you know, what's a valid transactions for people who think that, you know, 
spam is a problem on the blockchain, then having a smaller block size, having transactions cost more would be a good thing because it would price out uh, less important transactions like timestamping, like Veriblock, and you'd only use it for more settlement or for transactions that you don't want to do on Lightning Network or various things. So we'll, we'll see where it goes. Like it's so hard to predict, um, you know, where things go with with uh, the block size and you know, segregated witness obviously was an attempt to decrease, really, to decrease the cost of transactions. And some people said that's bad. You know, miners they they won't they won't mine without those fees. So. There's some historical precedent, but things are also changing. And I believe there's other developments that are they're working on to try to uh, increase or decrease the size of transactions even more, though I, I couldn't speak intelligently on those. This got so technical and it's, it was kind of unexpected. We, we didn't set this to happen, but we ended up talking about block sizes and minor incentives and all the complicated stuff that even the most brilliant minds in Bitcoin cannot predict. But I think it's great. And also, I don't want this to be interpreted as in I have something against Blockstream. For now, I think they're a great company and they release lots of useful products. And I think their focus is in the right place. But I also find it hard not to feel a degree of skepticism just because it's a company. And companies are against the very ethos of Bitcoin. I agree and disagree. So I agree with you that Blockstream so far has put out good products. I agree that they require extra scrutiny and we got to be careful. And we've seen in Bitcoin, like anywhere else, you know, kind of the, the more influential companies or people, uh, both financially and just culturally, People are often afraid to criticize them or to speak out because, you know, maybe they want a job at Blockstream or maybe they respect the people at Blockstream so they don't want to criticize them because maybe they're well-respected or, or influential. So that that is an issue. And we do see that, right? Like some people don't criticize certain people because of that. I've seen it like across the board and I try to be Maybe sometimes I'm, I'm too harsh and critical, but I just, you know, like Satoshi Roundtable, maybe that's a dumb example, but I'm just so skeptical of anything where I see a trend where, where someone gets a free pass because who they are. So I agree with you on, on block, streaming, block stream being a good company, but we should be really, really uh, critical of what they're doing. But I think I will disagree, though, on the company idea that companies are kind of against the ethos of Bitcoin. I think companies, in a sense, can add a lot of functionality um, to, to Bitcoin. Like, for example, wallets, right? So Blockstream has their wallet, and I know a lot of people use it. It has a multi-sig and some other really good features. So that, that I think, adds security and, and use to Bitcoin. And then you've got things like BitRefill. So you've got cards you know, so you can um, change your Bitcoin and, and buy things with it through fiat. And I think they're a pretty well-respected company. So it's, I think it, 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 some companies can help Bitcoin. And like we've seen with BitPay, they can be very bad for Bitcoin if they're sort of a trusted third party who are hostile 
So I think we've got to be like really skeptical and critical of, of Bitcoin companies because they are centralization, but sort of balance that against the utility uh, that they bring. Just for the record, is BTC Pay Server a company? Like, is it's it not. Yeah, BTC Pay Server obviously is not a company. It's, you know, just sort of an open source project. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of ideal where you get this greater utility in making Bitcoin easier and better to use, and, but then at the same time, not a company. But that's, I think, the rare exception. Now, Square um, is donating, I think, $100,000. They created this foundation, the BTC Pay Server Foundation. I think that's a central way for people to donate money. So it becomes an interesting debate because some might say, oh, that's centralization. You know, they have a, a, a foundation and they've got money. But I, I think I, I don't really buy that that much. I think the benefits outweigh any potential risk there. So there's always, you know, there's trade-offs, right? There's trade-offs. So here, let's pick another company. It's like OpenNode. So OpenNode is a payment processor where you can accept Bitcoin and then, and then get fiat. And we looked at open node for guns and Bitcoin because it's very easy. They set things up for you. You don't have to be technical. You can easily convert into fiat, which a lot of businesses need or want. So I would say they're providing a great service, but on the other hand, they're a company. And so they, they do KYC AML. You know, they are regulatory. They are kind of a third party. So it's, it's really, I think, project and company specific. Right. Let's just move on from this idea of companies and get more personal. And I wanted to ask you something which I guess is very basic, but it needs to be addressed to some extent. So why did you get into Bitcoin? Well, it started in 2011 and I read about Bitcoin on Reddit in the anarcho-capitalism subreddit. And to me, it was interesting because of that philosophical angle. And, and so that's what just got me hooked. I, I wasn't into technology. I didn't ever care too much about technology. Can you hear that siren in the background? Oh yeah, that's OG, man. <laughs> okay, yeah, let me, uh, let's wait for that to pass. I don't know if you could pick it up. Okay, there, it's gone. Okay, so I'll kind of start over. So, so I got into Bitcoin in 2011 when I read about it on, on Reddit, on the anarcho-capitalism subreddit. And so I, I liked the philosophy of it and it spoke to my beliefs. Um, let's see, where was I going with this? Yeah, so, so I liked the philosophical beliefs and then what also uh, got me interested, oh, let me go back. So I like the philosophy of it, but it wasn't just, um, just that because I, I didn't come from a technology background. I, I wasn't like software engineer or anything like that. I come from healthcare background and then later real estate development construction. So I, the technology was semi-interesting, but just only to the extent that it helped Bitcoin accomplish its purpose. And then practically speaking, around that time, I had a small construction business, uh, renovating homes and such. 
and I use BitPay as the main way to accept payments and to pay people. So homeowners would, I'd send them an invoice with, um, I'd send them an invoice. Sorry, let me, let me start it over. I'm starting to get a little tired here. Um, what was the, what was the company? Not BitPay, but, uh, PayPal. Okay. Let me start over. So at that time I had a small construction business and I would use PayPal, uh, to accept payments and to pay, pay my subcontractors. So I would send, uh, invoices with PayPal to homeowners and they would pay me. And then I had guys who worked for me and I would pay them out through PayPal. But one day PayPal closed my account and they wouldn't tell me why. And they said I couldn't appeal it. So all of a sudden I didn't have a way to really accept payments or to pay guys that well, because I couldn't accept cash. It was too much money all at once. Um, I didn't accept credit cards at that time. Uh, you know, this is back in like 2011. So it wasn't as easy and I couldn't accept checks because it was too high risk. So that put me in a really bad position. And this is when I was reading about Bitcoin. So I thought, Oh, this is great. You know, Bitcoin, it can't shut me down. So that's when I, I it really became real for me when I actually needed it. You know, a lot of people talk about that. Oh, in North America, in the U S and Europe, we don't really understand the need for censorship resistant payments that only you need that in Venezuela or, you know, Iran or other countries, but that's not true. It wasn't true for me at all. So that's, that's how I got into, into Bitcoin, a combination of philosophy and just needing it myself. Just as a side note, it's very funny that in the back of your mind, you're basically associating BitPay with PayPal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're, they're the same thing. And it's funny, Pavlinex, when, uh, on our podcast, he said, okay, how do I explain BTC pay server? He's like, it's as if everyone had PayPal. Like there's a million PayPals for each person. But then he said, of course, it's not the same because PayPal is a company in a trusted third party, but it's, it's, it's so hard to explain to people like how PayPal is different than Bitcoin. And, but to me, PayPal and BitPay are, you know, different sides of the same coin. It's also very interesting to know that you didn't get into Bitcoin for speculative pur purposes and you started using it because you needed it as opposed to just, you know, wanted to gamble or wanted to take a shot at something funny or interesting going on on the internet? Yeah, I, I tried to accept Bitcoin back then, but no one had even heard of it. And so unfortunately, I, I didn't get anyone to pay me in Bitcoin and no one wanted to accept it as payment. So unfortunately, that didn't work. And even to this day, it's still hard. It's 2019. It's still hard for people to you know, accept and pay in Bitcoin, even Bitcoiners don't want to pay in Bitcoin. So that's still a challenge. But yeah, it was a practical thing. I, I didn't have a background in Austrian economics. I barely understood what it was. I was an anarchist, you know, but but in terms of the economics, I'm still like not an expert in it. So yeah, it, it, it was a practical thing. And in terms of like the investment and speculation, I, I quickly kind of did grasp that it could be a very valuable investment, but it was definitely not uh, what got me started. Yeah, it's always good to hear that people get into Bitcoin because they need it. And I guess that as time passes, it's going to be 
a much more common story among people. As most people right now are basically, I think we have had different waves of adoption. We had the cypherpunks who got in first, like Hal Finney and maybe Greg Maxwell and Vladimir Vanderland, who is the maintainer of Bitcoin Core right now. And then you had the libertarians who basically saw that you have this invention which follows their ideological belief. And after that, after the first big bubble, I guess every new entrant had some speculative kind of thought process because they heard about Bitcoin in the news. It has been covered since 2011, 2012 or something. And they had a lot of reasons to believe that this could increase in price after they read about it and try to understand where it can get to. And I think it's remarkable that to this day, we can see a strong support for the Bitcoin price around $10,000, even though I know it's bad to think in terms of USD, but it's going to be the norm for a while. And the fact that even when the market is basically uninteresting, we get to stick to this threshold only proves that there's a lot of potential for growth and we haven't even reached that part where everybody talks about it and it's in the news and you go to your barber to get a haircut and he tells you about buying into Bitcoin. I think that was 2017 and I suppose there's going to be another 2017 sometime in the future, but with more Bitcoin-centric discussions and less blockchain hype and shitcoinery. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I think every time we get a big run up, you mentioned 2013, 2017, it brings a new wave of people, some in a bad way, because they only care about making money, which isn't that bad. But unfortunately, long term, it's it's not the best. But But on the other hand, you know, speculation is one of the best applications of Bitcoin, because that helps people who need it the most financially. Like, for example, if you already are middle class or above, you have various investments. You can make the stock market, real estate. The more money you have, the more uh, investment opportunities. For example, you have to be an accredited investor to invest in startups and other things. So it, the wealthier you are, the easier it is to make money. And so kind of regular people, middle class, lower middle class, and especially in less developed countries, they just don't have a way to invest in anything. And on top of that, their currency, which is their only financial asset, um, usually drops in value over time. So, so for them, quote unquote, speculation is, could be the most important thing they ever use Bitcoin for to help them get out of poverty. And, you know, even I could, I could speak personally, having invested in Bitcoin, it's helped me a great deal. And I live in the United States and I grew up, you know, pretty middle class. So, so speculation could be a bad thing if it's people kind of abusing it, but it can also be one of the best applications of Bitcoin and might help people more than anything else, depending on their situation. And it's, it's also good because it's, permissionless. So you can buy Bitcoin, even if you're, you know, in, in a less developed nation, or if you've been kicked out of the, the um, 
you know, investment in, in payment world, either because of where you live or because you maybe have a criminal record or you're in uh, high risk businesses. So it's, you know, I think it really depends on the situation. Yeah, I agree with you. There are so many reasons for people to get into Bitcoin and we are just scratching the surface. And our assumptions right now may be wrong because new people will find new creative ways to use Bitcoin. And I think this goes back to a conversation that I privately had with John Carvalho when I met him. And he basically said that Bitcoin is only fun as long as you can break rules with it. But breaking rules doesn't necessarily imply breaking the law. It's just about not following the herd, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think that's well put. And just being able to do things that you, you, nothing else is available to do it, you know? So whether it's a gambling site or, or donating to WikiLeaks, which is another example, right? WikiLeaks, um, the government, U.S. government pressured their credit card companies and I think banks to stop people from donating to WikiLeaks. But, you know, Bitcoin allowed WikiLeaks to you know, break the rules, as John said. And, and, and that's, that's what it did. So that's, yeah, John's a smart guy. Yeah. And I got in 2017 into Bitcoin because it was the first time when I started making any money whatsoever. Before that, I was in university. I had every other activity related to the campus and trying to learn and trying to make a career. I wanted to be a university professor at some point and I did my master's and I was a student representative and I got into a big fight with the dean. And that from that point onwards, I just realized that it's over. But I started buying Bitcoins when I realized that there is a high inflation rate for the national currency of my country. And I, I was just looking, maybe that also for some speculation, but for a safer haven for my money. Yeah, that's interesting because it's, it's upside and then, of course, downside. If you, you know, 2017, uh, depending on when in the year you bought it, you could be down a lot. But yeah, long term, you're better off. And as a university student, probably don't have a lot of options for investment. Like it's probably hard to buy real estate that costs, you know, 500,000 US dollars if you're a university student. So you can invest in that, but you can invest in Bitcoin. And if your currency, you know, is, is not that stable, it's, it's insurance. Now, I, I think the idea of, um, you know, Bitcoin is insurance against, you know, bad events with central banks. I obviously that's true, but I don't think it's because, oh, you know, if the dollar crashes or the Euro crashes and Bitcoin is going to go up, I don't think history supports that. I mean, maybe there's an example, but I think generally it does. In a crisis, usually everything goes down, but with Bitcoin, it's not as correlated with the entire banking system. So if the entire banking system collapses, collapses, Bitcoin doesn't collapse. Well, I think its price might nosedive because everyone has to sell everything at once. But you could see in Argentina. So Argentina is a good example. Their currency has, has uh, you know, obviously dropped in value over and over again. And so Bitcoin has been an alternative. I think Bitcoin still needs to go through this test of facing the issues which it was created to face. As we haven't had any major financial crisis 
and I mean something global to influence all the markets. And I guess the events that we have had throughout the last week when the NY Fed printed about 300 billion or something are leading to unfortunate market developments because they're creating more inflation and that's going to have a lot of consequences and Cantillon effects and all that terrible stuff. So maybe that in the next couple of years, Bitcoin will have its real test against global markets and we will see how stable it is and how, to which extent, the people who call themselves hodlers right now are going to go through these hard times and not sell any Bitcoins. And also, you said that it's important to mention in which part of 2017 I got in. It was very early, but I was an idiot and I traded and I would take profits and then buy in again. And I ended up just losing just as much as I made. (laughs) Well, you weren't the only one. I think that happened to a lot of people. So there is, that's why I'm I'm kind of, I want to be careful when we say that Bitcoin solves inflation because, you know, inflation can be bad, but it's not as bad as people think. For example, in the United States and in Europe, yes, we have inflation. Uh, You know, it could be 3%, 5%, depends on the year and what numbers you believe. And that's that's not good. Uh, You know, the value of the currency does go down because of that. But we have to be realistic and understand that Bitcoin has dropped 80, 90% in value. So like what's worse, your money devaluing at three, four, 5% or at 80, 90%. So, you know, it, it depends on your time horizon, but we can't tell everyone, oh, this, this just solves all the problems with central banking, like central banking erodes your value over time. Well, what if your time, your, your time is 12 months? or six months or three months or a year and a half, a bear market could last almost two years. So I think we should be very cautious with that line. And I've heard Pomp say over and over again, oh, this solves central banking or whatever it might be. And I think it does in the long term, like for years and years, that kind of time horizon. But in the short term, if, if that's like your only investment or your main thing, and you, you buy at a top of a market, like you'd be much better off never owning Bitcoin. I agree. And I think to some extent, Pompliano can be harmful in regards to the perception that people have on Bitcoin. I very much prefer the approach of Bitstein, Michael Goldstein, who at least is trying to be funny about it and tries to, in his own words, tries to get Bitcoin to the moon by memeing and creating all sorts of crazy memes. Yeah, Bitstein is great. And he has a good approach, like you said, with the memes and being funny. But I think he also has a more sophisticated approach because if you read other things that he writes and Satoshi Nakamoto Institute and what he wrote years ago with Everyone's a Scammer, he does, I think, you know, talk about the time horizons and sort of the risks. And so he gives a more holistic understanding of Bitcoin, whereas, you know, Pomp and others, they don't give the full picture. And so they're leaving out risks. They're leaving out things that go wrong. So I think that's kind of the wrong approach. Now, people might disagree with you and I and say, no, that approach is good because they explain it at a very simple level. It's they say things that will get on TV and help Bitcoin. But 
I, yeah, I, I think I'm like you. I'm a little skeptical of, of that approach. I guess they address different kinds of audiences as Pompliano is more appealing to traditional investors, whereas Bitstein is much more focused on people who are into Bitcoin or maybe into other cryptocurrencies, but do not understand yet that Bitcoin is supreme. That's true. That's true. So like one good thing Pomp does is he seems to be pushing these traditional finance companies to own some Bitcoin. I think I've heard him say like get off zero or something. So I think that could be good just to kind of let these, you know, these companies who have billions, hundreds of billions, you know, if they buy up a fraction of the Bitcoin up there, Hey, that's good for you and I, because our, our Bitcoin, our Bitcoin holdings, Will go up. So maybe it is, you know, different audiences, different speakers, each each add to something. Right. I think we should get to the questions that we have received during the last hour on Twitter. Okay. But before I find the questions, t- tell us more about your background in medicine or what is it, healthcare? Uh, yeah, I, I want to be... I don't want to go into too much detail other than to say I, I do have a background in, in medicine and pharmaceutical research and statistics. Okay. So I found some questions and David Hollerith at DS Hollerith on Twitter says that he has listened to your interview with Peter McCormack and wants to know if you hunt and how that falls into your personal philosophy? That's a, that's a funny question. I do not hunt uh, for various reasons. Of course, I believe it's perfectly ethical to eat meat and to you know, kill animals so we can survive. That's nature. That's just reality of the world we live in where to survive, we, we should and can't eat red meat, and I don't think anything is wrong with that. Obviously, I think cruelty to animals is wrong. I think there's an ethical way to hunt responsibly. Um, so I don't, I don't hunt, don't really have an interest in it. Okay. I partially agree with you because I have nothing against having meat. I tried to be a vegetarian for a couple of years, but then I realized that I was always on low, low on energy and I was always tired and could not basically cope with all tasks that I had on a daily basis. And I needed some kind of protein to get me through the day and keep me efficient. But I don't hunt either. I see it if it's a hobby, then it's rather cruel because you, you, you do it for fun, not for survival purposes. Yeah, it's one argument is that hunting is better for animals than it is if they're like traditionally raised. So some might say, well, if you, if you have cattle, their life isn't as good. So it's, you know, it goes both ways, but, but not to get too philosophical. I think, you know, a lot of people are atheists, right? Uh, I think it's, it's fairly common, maybe especially in technology. And so when you ask about the ethics of hunting, I would say, well, what do you base that ethics off of? 
Like, what is it? Like, if you're religious, you say, well, okay, you know, the ethics comes from God. Okay. Well, if you're an atheist, what's right and wrong? Like, how do you determine that? And so that's another argument that I have is, okay, I'll listen to that argument. But when you get down to the foundations of it, I I think all of a sudden it's not scientific at all. It's extremely subjective, which is fine. It's just people can't admit to the fact that their ethics are preferences and subjective. Right. So Brady at Citizen Bitcoin would like to hear if you thought about the state of mental health care in the United States, particularly as it relates to gun violence, and if so, what we could do to improve it. Yeah, that was a good question. I saw that. So I think mental illness has two components. I should say mental illness does have two components, which is biological and then you know, environmental, and it falls on a spectrum. So something like schizophrenia has a very strong biological component. You know, they, they've shown this with twin studies, you know, when one, when two siblings have a twin, the likelihood if one has schizophrenia, what's the likelihood of another? So that's on the far end of having a biological component. On the other end is something like mild depression, which doesn't have as strong of a biological component. It it does for a lot of people. So in terms of um, improving mental health, we have to focus on both things. So on the kind of genetic biological component, you know, getting, you know, good research, getting good uh, healthcare. So trying to decrease the cost of healthcare, trying to reduce the stigma, trying to have very vigorous, research about efficacy uh, in the US our, our biggest problem we have two big problems with healthcare is the cost and that's mostly due to government regulation and two is the large uh, pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies and their cost and influence now a lot of reason why they have such a high cost again goes back to government regulation um, and so it's it's really complicated in the US now of course Pharmaceutical research is what gives us better medicine. I mean, it costs a lot of money to create better medicines. And so you can't just say, oh, evil pharmaceutical companies. No, they create the medicine. So in terms of like the biological component of healthcare, and especially in the US, I think the best thing to focus on is trying to reduce regulation, which I don't think is ever going to happen. So we're kind of stuck with that. and in terms of improving healthcare, excuse me, in terms of proving, in terms of improving mental illness treatment, we also have to look at other factors like the family, especially, and society in general. So the number one predictor of violent crime is a lack of a father in the home. So going back to the kind of the, the violence question, if we really want to solve that then we need to solve the problem of families falling apart, which is not a simple issue. I mean, you can go back as far as Nietzsche when he talks about, you know, God is dead and what is he replaced with? He, you know, that's been replaced with nihilism. It's been replaced by the state. The state is now our God. And so when you have that, when life is meaningless and the state becomes the family, that really, really devastates, you know, the family. And then when you have inflation and, you, and your financial situation is such that 
it takes both a husband and wife to, to be able to afford, you know, to pay for, you know, your expenses. Whereas before, if you could just live off of one income, that is less pressure on the family, you know, mothers can spend more time at home, you know, so all these factors and just a general lack of morality, all these factors, financial, philosophical, the state, all these have weakened the family. And that's what we're seeing um, these consequences of um, violence and a lot of other uh, society ills. So going back to mental health, uh, if we want to improve mental health, we got to we got to get back to basics with the family, with community. You know, in the West, our families are all broken up. Uh, people live by themselves. People often aren't close to their families. They have small families. So they don't have that safety net. So if you're mentally ill and you don't have brothers and sisters and uncles that you can talk to that can help you out, you're all by yourself. And then that makes it worse. And then not only that, but you don't have resources. So if you don't have a family and healthcare is expensive, it's a, it's a really bad combination. So I, I wish the gun debate wasn't so politicized. I wish people would, would try to focus on real solutions. And for me, that involves focusing on the family, general society, and, and then, of course, just better access to healthcare. I haven't really given it much consideration up to this point, but when I was 21, I had a study scholarship in Sweden, and it's one of the most depressing places on this planet. I landed there during winter, and I had about three months in which I only saw sunlight for a couple of hours a day, and I got so depressed that I contemplated suicide, and it was the first time when I was living alone, as in I didn't have any family members or friends, and I was just attending classes and realized that people are so cold and distant that it was hard for me to make any meaningful connections. But it, it makes sense when you think about it, because possibly if I had the chance to acquire a gun <laughs> around the time, I would have done something stupid. I don't want to assume anything, but I was in a terrible state for a few months. That's a good point. That's exactly what it is is that those conditions and it's not like you you did anything bad or it's anyone's fault it's just a lack of sunlight and being away from your family pushed you to a place that you probably never would have been maybe in your life it's just those circumstances and like you said maybe if you had access to a firearm maybe you would would have done something dumb maybe you wouldn't have but either way if we want to solve this problem you know we got to think hey vlad maybe you should stay home with your family or maybe you shouldn't live in a place that's really dark. It, you know, it's just like simple things like that can go a long way. But I, I don't hear anyone talking about that. When you hear talk about violence and mental health, no one says, well, be careful not to move to the Nordic countries and be careful to always, you know, try to be, stay with your family. I mean, I, I rarely see anyone giving that advice. Oh, yeah. And even in Sweden, they don't really know how to deal with it. When you open the cabinet, as in you go to the bathroom and you open the cabinet where you hold your toothbrush or whatever, you see that they have a sticker with the suicide watch number. <laughs> it, it, they basically say, if you feel bad, just call us. And also they get drunk a lot. I, I guess that's their way of coping with the shitty weather. Yeah, I mean, and they can improve it with light therapy. But again, that's just people got to think about that when it comes to to 
healthcare and taking care of themselves. But anyway, I agree with you that being among your friends and family is possibly the best kind of choice that you can make. And no job or decision, no matter how rational it can be from a financial point of view, can replace that kind of feeling that you get when you know that people around you care about who you are and not what you are. Yes. And this intersects with Bitcoin. So for those who, who didn't care about this topic, I'll, I will bring it back to Bitcoin for you. Um, there's such a strong streak of individualism in Bitcoin and libertarianism and obviously anarchy. It's really about the individual and individual sovereignty. And I think that's a good place to start to at least get away from the state and oppression. But that's bare minimum. I mean, that, that maybe helps you survive. But if you really want to thrive, you can't just be a self-sovereign individual. You need your friends. You need your family. And so, uh, you know, and I've, I've just kind of learned this the hard way that libertarianism falls short and Bitcoiners and a lot of people like us need to remember that. Like you've got to have friends and you've got to have family and just having Twitter friends is not enough or, or, or you can improve on it. Let's just say that you're, you're better off if you can have a close group of friends and family. And, and that also leads to Bitcoin in a practical way because you know most people get their bitcoins on regulated exchanges but if more people buy and sell bitcoin from each other that gets around all of that and that's something i've been trying to focus on lately is trying to encourage uh you know events and meetup groups to set some set time apart to buy and sell bitcoin and my local meetup group here in california has been incredible uh, they, they've just been doing so well. They put on good speakers. And then we had one on Thursday, a Bitcoin meetup group. And, you know, a couple of us were buying and selling Bitcoin, not much, you know, $20. But it's just having that community, those friends, just one more layer in meat space that we need. I totally agree. And I'm really happy that we got to this conversation as it's unique and it doesn't get brought up a lot. But I have one last question from somebody whom apparently you blocked on Twitter. And his name is Victor Irem. And he takes the question back to that one time you went to the Crypto Voices show and you said something about Stellar being interesting or something. When was this? This was, let me think, I think it was 2017. So this is such a ridiculous question. It started with J.W. Weatherman um, trying to just do, doing what he does. So what I said was, and I invite anyone to listen to that podcast, we were talking about tokenization. And basically, I was criticizing Ethereum because it's you know, not very scalable, not very safe. And I said that Stellar was a better alternative to Ethereum. So... People like this guy block, I probably blocked him for a reason, probably because he said something stupid and he seems to be continuing on with his uh, stupidity. So I'm not a shill for Stellar, never have been. I've never owned Stellar until it airdropped on me. I've never owned anything but Bitcoin. Someone gifted me some, uh, some Ether and I lost it because I sent it to the wrong address. Otherwise, I've never owned any, any uh, altcoins or shitcoins. I've never shilled. Stellar. I was making a technical comment 
that Stellar was better than Ethereum. And I think empirically, it's absolutely true. And anyone who tries to argue otherwise either doesn't understand the technology or is being dishonest. Oh, thanks for the clarification. I mean, personally, I don't see anything wrong with altcoins as experiments as long as they get marketed as such, because none of them has the same network effect as Bitcoin. It's unlikely that any one of them will exist in five to 10 years. But it's at the same time useful because all the ideas that get presented by developers get tested in some project at some point, and they can see whether or not they are a good idea, how they how people actually use them. And maybe that at some point they will end up being used in Bitcoin side chains or soft forks or whatever. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's like the real problem with altcoins is how they market themselves, which is usually scammy. They're dishonest. And I think that's the main thing. But if they were just simple like experiments, like, oh, we're this altcoin and we are centralized and we're not that safe and we're not as good as Bitcoin, but we're looking at this one different way to do it. I think people couldn't really justify having a problem if they were just honest about it. But like you said, it's, it's when they market themselves as something different, you know, that becomes the problem. And um, yeah, like for example, tokenization, like I was uh before I started Guns and Bitcoin, I was heavily involved in real estate and I was trying to get the real estate industry to adopt Bitcoin. And I had a startup and we were focused on um, using tokens to transfer ownership of real estate. And we actually used colored coin. And we had this partnership with the government of Chicago, the city and county of Chicago. And we successfully created a legal transfer of real estate. And we used Bitcoin's colored coins to do that, we forked colored coins. And my experience with, with colored coins was pretty awful. It was very difficult to use. And so it, it made more sense that other platforms were created specifically for that. Like, like, for example, Stellar is kind of created for that to a certain extent, Ethereum to a certain extent. But obviously I don't like either. But hey, if they try it, maybe that functionality could be brought onto Bitcoin, maybe not. So I think I agree with you. It's good for experimentation. The problem is 99% of them are, are dishonestly marketed. Totally agree. And also speaking of color coins, I spoke to Giacomo Zucco, who is right now leading a project in which he is trying to bring the concept, concept of tokens and colored coins on top of lightning. And it's yeah. fascinating how it comes back to Bitcoin at a point where the technology has advanced enough to have a strong and robust second layer that can be used to develop whatever cannot be brought on the first layer for scalability or validation purposes. Yeah, that's a good point. I remember when he first started talking about that, and I think I asked him, or, or maybe asked Peter Todd about that last year at the honey badger conference so i'm glad he's working on that and i think he also said something about timing which is true sometimes it's just not the right time for something and maybe now with second layer uh, maturing more maybe there will be maybe the the superior token platform will be layer two bitcoin and you know stellar and ethereum and all these other ones 
will drop off just like they've dropped off for everything else. Because even though you could say Bitcoin has been behind in the sense that they didn't have that immediate functionality, like colored coin tokenization and Omni and Omni or MasterCoin, you know, had inferior uh, functionality. In the long run, Bitcoin is more likely to succeed, A, because of it's just better, like the software is just 100 times better. It's more secure, has network effects. So Bitcoin can kind of like wait and mature and be secure and let other altcoins experiment and then just, just pick the best parts from it. Right. So I will ask you one last question because we have been going on for about an hour. And I guess this is the correct and righteous length to have our podcast. How do you see Bitcoin during the times of hyper-Bitcoinization? I'm skeptical that hyper-Bitcoinization will happen because I, I don't see, I don't see mainstream adoption, but even if, if, if there is hyper-Bitcoinization, which is there's this incredible increase in the value of, of Bitcoin such that it, it sort of causes many people to be radically wealthy and perhaps stops uh, governments and states from being able to exist or at least greatly weakens them. I'm skeptical because, you know, states have survived many financial um, crises. Um, you know, like if you look at Russia, when they defaulted on their debt, it caused, caused a big crisis, but they, they certainly didn't lose control of, of their money. You know, it, it bottomed out. People sought, you know, other currencies, but because they, they had all the guns, it's like, well, you have to use the ruble and in different controls. So I would love for hyper Bitcoinization to happen. I'm just skeptical that it will cause the state to go away. And I'm skeptical that, that Bitcoiners, even extremely wealthy ones will um, be able to totally escape the state. I think, I think there will be certain jurisdictions which will be very friendly, like Island nations. Um, they might be, you know, pretty much, uh, give free reign to a lot of Bitcoiners, but I think, I think people need to kind of be more realistic and think about the shorter to medium term and trying to gain basic financial sovereignty now and to have a network of friends and family that they can rely on and, and thrive with. I mean, look at, we're talking about hyper Bitcoinization, but people are buying everything on exchanges. So like, why don't we start with trying to solve that huge, huge problem today? Right. I agree. And this has been incredible, really. I thought when I had that podcast with American Huddle that it was basically the peak. But I think this was one of the most insightful conversation I've had lately. And I'm really happy that we have done this. I appreciate that. And I think American Huddle's probably better. He's very funny and smart, but um, I, I appreciate that. And I, I've loved your questions and your comments. So you're, you're very good at that. And, and thank you for inviting me on. This is, this is, I, I really enjoy talking. This is really good. Thank you, Ragnar. This was incredible. I'll talk to you later. Thank you.